And Father, it may not be the way we want it to be, but we're not God and you are. And just let it be well with every soul here and those who would normally be here and can't be here today. And we just ask this in the wonderful name and praise your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good morning, family. Hope everyone's having a good Sunday so far. <clears throat> it is well with my soul. What an amazing statement to be able to make. Amazing statement that can only be made when we know who Jesus Christ is and know who God is and what he has promised us. We all have stories. We all have things going on in our lives that might tempt us to say it's not so well, but it's amazing to be able to know Christ and know God who's in control and be able to say it truly is well. We are starting a new series going through the book of Titus, uh, which we're going to dive in in a second. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this day, a day in which we can gather as your family, a day in which we can sing praises to you, we can pray to you, we can sit under your word, and we can commune together as your body, as your, as your people, and be encouraged. Lord, I pray as we open up the book of Titus that you bring it to life in our minds and our hearts, that we can see you and how you care about the church and how you care about us and how you have saved us from ourselves, from our sin, from the devil, from this world. And Lord, I just pray that we can be encouraged and can see how we should respond with all of who we are. Lord, we just pray for this church. Let us be your people. Let us follow you and trust in you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're starting a book in the series of, we're starting a series in the book of Titus. Got that one flipped up. Uh, and you might say, well, why Titus? A lot of people actually don't even realize this is a book of the Bible. It's a tiny little book that we find after all the other T's, after the Thessalonians, after the Timothys, and now we come to Titus. Why would we study this book of Titus? Is it just because I happen to have a son named Titus, and I think, hey, let's do that? No, that's not why. Though it's funny because when we were setting up and we have like graphics that say Titus, and he came in one day and he saw it and he kind of ran over and pointed to it like, hey, What's this? Kind of happy, but also scared that something's going on with him? But no, that's not why we are going to study the book of Titus. You might say, but why the book of Titus? It's such a tiny little book. And you're right, it is a tiny little book. It's 46 little verses that talk about the church. So why would we study the book of Titus? Well, because the book of Titus gives this great picture of the Christian life. It gives this beautiful duet of how Christian thinking pairs with Christian living. It gives this great com uh, uh, combination of that belief and behavior go together. Creed and conduct 
are made to be joined and should not be separated. That what we actually believe, what we, actually be- what we think and believe about God matters for how we live and how we operate in this world. And that, that is, is, is throughout the whole Bible, and especially in the New Testament, but Titus brings these two things together in a beautiful way, showing us that what we believe about God truly matters because it changes how we live this life. That we should be zealous for both of these things. Zealous for how we believe and how we think and how we think great things about our great God, but also be zealous about how we live for our great God and live to serve Him and to help people and, and, and do all those good things we're called to do. So it's a great thing to say the book of Titus because it is God's Word. Now the book of Titus is one of the three pastoral epistles, which is a fancy way of saying one of the three letters that Paul wrote to people rather than churches. Sometimes people want to throw in the fourth one of uh, Philemon, but really the first and second Timothy and Titus are written to pastors or people who are in charge of setting up and making sure the church is healthy. And Paul wrote these letters to them to encourage them, to give instructions about how the church should be formatted or how the church should answer some of the problems they're going through, which shows us that God actually cares about how we quote-unquote do church. Actually, God cares about how we gather together to praise His name and how we gather together to be encouraged to go and spread His gospel throughout the world. So it's good and right and fitting that we can read these, this book and be encouraged nowadays because this is also addressing us as a church. So let's read from the book of Titus. We'll be just doing the first four verses today in Titus chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, as Paul gives his greeting uh, to Titus. It starts like this. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, My true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, Paul really can pack in a lot in a few words, can't he? Because that is just a lot of information right there, right at the beginning of this book of Titus. But when you read this, what can we pull from even just the starting point of the book of Titus? And I would argue this, that solid faith leads to solid living. It's funny, nowadays I would argue that we see that there's a disconnect in our society or in, in people you might even know that between what they believe and how they live and people are always willing to claim they believe one way but their life seems to demonstrate that they believe something different or they operate as if they believe something different. And Titus in the whole New Testament and the whole Bible, I would argue, comes and says, no, what we believe naturally flows into how we live and that what we believe results in how we live. And so that if you want to know what someone truly believes, you just look at how they live and you can trace it back to what they believe because that is how they operate. That's how they see the world. And so Titus, is, Paul here to Titus is making this argument right at the beginning that you should know who God is and when you know who God is you live like you know who God is. And you live appropriately and you seek to follow him and worship him and love him and spread his fame throughout the world. 
that if you have a firm and solid faith that's, that's resulting in conviction of the truth, it leads to a life that's built on that firm and solid rock of Christ. Solid faith leads to solid living. But let's see how he makes this argument and how we should do that. Maybe you should just ask the question, well, who is this Paul character who's writing this book or this letter of Titus? Probably most of us know who Paul is. He's that great missionary that we're introduced to in the book of Acts. He's the guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament. He wrote letters to churches. He planted churches. He was persecuted for believing in who Jesus Christ was. He is this larger-than-life figure that traveled across the known empire at the time, preaching Christ in him crucified. And he was writing to one of his friends, his, his companions that traveled with him. And he's writing to him, and he's introducing himself. This is me, Paul, writing you this letter. And how does he describe himself? He describes himself as a servant of God, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. When we read uh, Titus, or when you look into the letter, you, you see that most likely this was written while he was in prison in Rome. And so in the end of the book of Acts, we see how he heads to Rome and he's kind of in house arrest. And probably during this time, AD 62, AD 63, he's writing letters to a lot of churches and, a lot, and to a lot of people. And he's writing to Titus, kind of telling them, hey, continue the good work uh, in, that you're doing in the local churches. So Paul is writing to this companion in the faith, the servant of spreading the gospel. But we see something actually pretty interesting of how he describes himself. And I think we can learn a lot about how we should look at ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ. He first describes himself, as I said, as a servant of God. What's interesting, this is actually Paul's favorite way of talking about who he is. That he is a doulos of Christos. Is that he is, he is a servant of of Jesus Christ. But now he's saying he's a servant of God. And we see he's kind of even in Titus, he's playing with this kind of confirming that Jesus Christ and God are God themselves. And that he's talking about the Trinity here, this picture of this. But he's a servant. He is, he's, he's a slave. Depending on your translation, this same word can be translated slave, bond servant, or just servant. And Paul is getting at this idea that he no longer counts himself as being owned by himself, but he was bought with a price that God owns him. He's no longer his, him, is, is, he no longer views himself as his, himself. He views himself as someone who belongs to God. When we read that language of either slave or even servant, we might chafe under that because we are strong in American, you know, American types who like in our independence. We don't want to be servants or slaves to anyone. But at that time, this people being in servitude was very common. and Actually, it was a very secure financial place for a lot of people to be into. And, but Paul is recognizing that he owes his life doubly to God. He owes his life to God because God made him. He owes his life again to God because God saved him through Jesus Christ. And we see this kind of language espoused throughout the New Testament. We see it uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 if I can find it, where Paul says basically in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in, starting in verse 19, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, 
For you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. That Paul knew that he was not his own because he owed his life doubly to God, and so he describes himself as a servant of God. But that's not all. He also describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle, the title of apostle, can be used in a technical sense or a general sense. It really just means sent one. We think of apostle in the technical sense when we're talking about the 12 apostles, the people who, the disciples of Jesus who traveled around with him, who were sent out personally by Jesus to spread his word. But we also think of the, the term apostle as a general sense, that any Christian who has received a commission to go out, which is all of us, to spread the gospel, is, in, in that general sense, an apostle. But Paul here talks as an apostle, someone who actually was sent out by Jesus Christ himself. He had that Damascus Road experience, remember, where he was traveling to persecute Christians, and Jesus showed up. Up and he fell on his butt. He's kind of like, what is going on here? And Jesus sends him out to proclaim the gospel. And so he knows himself to be impossible, a sent one from Jesus Christ, that he knew that he is supposed to go and proclaim the word of God. So Paul describes himself as a servant, an apostle, and it is all for the people of God. You see that. He, he, as he says, he's a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That he actually sees his whole purpose, him being a servant of God, him being an apostle, as someone who is designed to be for the people of God. He was there, he was, he was instilled with these tasks for their benefit, for the people of God. But I would argue we are more like Paul in this sense than we might want to believe. We can read this and be like, that's Paul. He can use that grandiose language because he was larger in life. He was on the mission field. He, was, he saw Jesus. He had that Damascus Road experience. That's Paul. But I argue that he is actually speaking fundamentally as someone who knows Jesus. And if that's true of you, if you know who Jesus Christ is, we are more like him than we're not. And that we actually see our life more like he does than we are tempted to. That we should actually see our lives as being servants of God. Like how would, we, how would your life change if you actually view yourself like Paul viewed himself and actually view yourself as a servant of God, realizing, you know what, I'm not my own. My prerogatives, my wants, my desires don't take precedent. They're not the ones I follow. They're not the ones I'm, I'm designing my whole life after, but rather I look to God and his word and what he has called me to do, and I am his servant. I will ask him to send me where I'm supposed to go and do what I'm supposed to do, and I look to his word for what I'm supposed to do and know that I'm not my own. Why? Because I know who Jesus is, and I know what he did for me, and I know how he has saved me, and so now I respond with all of our hymns and says, yes, I am yours. How would your life change if that is truly how you viewed life, like Paul? That you are a servant of God. But not only in that, but you're also a sent one of Jesus Christ. Again, we, I don't think most of us here probably had that Damascus Road experience where we got put on our butt by Jesus. But we, if you know Christ, have that experience of knowing 
Jesus. And when you know Jesus, you're fundamentally changed because you see the Lord of the cosmos come to save you. And you cannot remain the same. And when he comes to save us, he does not to save us for ourselves, but he saves us for a mission, a purpose. And that is to make him known across this globe to make him known wherever we are, to be truly a sent one of him. We see that throughout the, the, the Gospels. Every single Gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, end with Jesus giving some sort of great commission to his followers. The most famous one is in Matthew, where he says, you know, he, where he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you always until the end of the age. I forgot a part of it, but that's fine. We're moving on. But it's this great commission about what we're supposed to do. We preach the gospel. We train them up in what Jesus taught us. That's the part I forgot. And teaching everything I have commanded you. And so in all the gospels, we are told this. This is what we're supposed to be. People sent out by him to spread the word. And we don't do it just for our own sake. We definitely don't do it for our namesake. We do it because we do it for the people of God. And all of this, just like Paul, how he wrote letters, how he traveled, how he was persecuted, how he endured so much was for the people of God to know Jesus. So we live our life as a servant, as a sent one, so that the people of God can expand, so the people of God can be built up, so the people of God can turn around then and go out and spread the only hope of this world, Jesus Christ, to all who would hear. Solid faith leads to this understanding of who we are, which leads to solid living, of living for God in all that we do. Solid faith leads to solid living. So that's Paul. But who is he writing to? Who is this Titus character that he's writing to. It's interesting to get your own book in the Bible, but yet you're not even mentioned in the book of Acts. Titus is not found in the book of Acts, but we find him throughout the New Testament as Paul alludes to him or talks to him or other people talk about him. And so Titus is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament. He's mentioned in 2 Corinthians. He's mentioned in Galatians. He's mentioned in 2 Timothy. And of course, he's mentioned in the book that bears his name, in Titus. And so we get this picture of who he is. That he was Greek. He was not Jewish in nature. And in fact, Paul takes Titus as a case example when he goes back to Jerusalem when the Jewish Christians were debating about what the Gentile Christians have to do to be Christ followers. And they were debating, do they have to follow the Jewish law? Do they have to follow the dietary restrictions? Do they have to become Jews first to become Christians? And Paul's like, no, the gospel goes throughout all the world. And he takes Titus, a Greek who is not circumcised, brings him to Jerusalem and says, look at this Christ follower. Look at this guy filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're like, you're right. He is a Christian like us. He is our brother. And so they, they celebrated and they say, this is a case example of the, the gospel going out and doesn't have to go through the Jewish lens anymore. That Gentiles can be brought in and be part of the family. This is who Titus was. Probably a personal convert of Paul. He describes him as my true a true, chi- a true ch- child in a common faith, probably someone who heard Paul speak 
and was converted and followed Paul to be put to use by God. And he was put to use by God. But when you trace the examples of where Titus appears in the New Testament, you, you see him appearing in places that needed help. You see him appear in 2 Corinthians, where he's, has, he's trying to correct the ship of the Corinth church and kind of correct some errors that happens. You see him appear in, in, uh, in mentioning in like 2 Timothy and in, uh, in Galatians, talking about where he's going. You see him t- uh, talk about in the book of Titus how he was sent or left in Crete to help establish the churches. In 2 Timothy, he talks about how he goes on to Dalmatia, this, this region, to help correct the churches and steer them in the right path. So you get this picture that Titus was Paul's troubleshooter. He was Paul's hitman. That Paul hears, hey, there's trouble in Corinth. Who am I going to send? Titus, get on a boat, get over there, and set them straight. And Titus did. That he was a man used by God in the ministry of Paul to help establish and firm up churches for the glory of God. And that Paul loved this guy. And he, as I said, he called him a true child in a common faith. We often talk about the, the faith in those terms, those familial terms that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're family here, and that we're family with, with believers elsewhere. And sometimes I think we talk about so much, which is good, because we are, sometimes we can talk about so much that we lose sight about the radical nature of what happens in that. Here is Paul who describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Someone who would look down on anyone who was not a Jew. They were not of the chosen people. I wouldn't want to even associate with them. The word of God was for God's people alone. And now, because of Jesus Christ, he can look upon a Gentile, a Greek, someone he would look down upon, or look upon him as a son in the faith. Speaking of family, he is truly my child. He is more a child to me than a child of my blood because we're united by a faith that redefines us. A faith that makes us God's children. We're brought into the family of God. And so Paul looks upon him and sees him truly as family. And how great and fundamental is that thing about our faith is that we can look upon people who look different than us, who maybe speak a different language than us, who have different backgrounds than us, who actually think different about politics than us, and we can see them and say, you are my brother and sister in faith because this faith is a common faith that unites us together, that fundamentally is more fundamental, more grounding to us than anything else in our life, even our biology, because Christ has brought us into his family. This is how Paul viewed Titus in this, how we should view the church, believers, that we're part of the same family. We can, we can fight as family fights. We can have some hardships with each other as family has hardships with each other. But we're still family, and we love each other, and we're there for each other, and we see us connected and united by Jesus Christ, that common faith that grounds us. So that's Paul. That's Titus. Why would he write this letter to Titus at this point in time? Well, he gives us the purpose of his writing. 
He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching which I have, entrust, I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul gives a purpose statement for his writing this letter. A purpose statement which I'm pretty sure is a run-on sentence and probably wouldn't pass the English class, but it's packed load of all this information of why is he writing this letter. As I said, it's for the church. It's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. It's for the believers. It's for the believers that God has brought together into his family, into the church. That the purpose in which he's writing is for their faith that their faith can be boistered, that their faith can grow, that their faith can be grounded in the truth of who Jesus is, that the church can be functioning well. It's for the people of God. It's for their knowledge of their truth. That Paul is writing that they might know what is true and what is not true. Fundamentally, our, our faith in Jesus Christ is a faith that's based on truth. That we believe correct things about God. We believe correct things about Jesus Christ. And that we know who he is. And because we know who he is, we love him. That makes sense, right? Because we first have to know something about who God is or about Jesus to actually be able to respond with love. We have to know that they're good, that they're worthy, that they are full of grace, that they are love. We know these things. And that brings us to a place where we respond in kind. You know, we look and might scoff at the young person who looks across the room and sees a pretty girl and says, man, I love that person. Well, talking to them, know anything about them. Like, that's not love. That's, that's, that's absurdity. You get older and you're like, yes, just grow out of it. The truth is when you know someone, when you see who they are and actually get to know them, that is where you get to that place where you actually can respond to them with love. And when we know who God is, who Jesus is, our Savior is, we can respond as we see their perfection, we see their holiness, we see the grandeur, we see the almighty power they have, but yet expressed with love and grace and mercy. And we can come to love them. Fundamentally, we... Our, our faith is built on truth, which might be just why Jesus described himself in John 14 as I am the truth, right? I am the way, the truth, the life. Anyone who, comes through, anyone who wants to come to the Father has to come through me. And we see the truth and we have to know the truth and be built up in that truth of who Jesus is. But it's not just head knowledge, it's not just truth. Paul's writing for the purpose that that this truth, which, uh, as he says, in their knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. He's actually writing for people's behavior, their conduct, their godliness, how they live in this life. He's writing for their holiness. He's writing so that they can actually live a transformed life. So often I think 
we probably neglect that part of the Christian life. We're so good because we don't want to be considered legalists, that you have to do something to get in. We don't want to be considered, you know, sticks in the mud. We don't want to, you know, make people uncomfortable. And so we kind of neglect maybe how we should live. And we want to focus so much on just who Jesus is and what he did for us. And so often we can be focusing on what Christ saves us from, the sin that we have ourselves and the world and the devil. We're so focused on what Christ saves us from that we forget that actually he has saved us to something and that is to live for him. And I love how the Bible sets us straight again and again when we can get kind of out of sorts. If we just read Romans in Romans 6, looking at verses um, 21, or 22, I should say, it says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. I love that. Because he's saying God Christ has, through God, God sent Christ to set you free from sin, to save you, to free you, to be what? A slave of God, a servant of God. That he frees you from wrong living, death, and the wages of sin is death, and everything that leads to that destruction, he frees you from that. Why? So that now you can live righteously before your righteous God and be his. So often we don't want to focus on that because, it, again, it makes us maybe uncomfortable or makes us think that we have to do something to earn that salvation when it gets low. He saved you when you were a sinner. He saved you when there was no hope in you. He saved you when there was no good in you. He saved you when you're a rebel and spinning his faith. But he saved you for the purpose. Why? To change you and transform you and to make you one of his. And now we live as one of his through grace and the working of the Spirit working in us. That there is this connect here. As I argued from the beginning, belief, behavior, doctrine, and deeds, creed, and conduct. I can probably keep the alliteration going, but I've stopped there. But these things that we, we believe leads to how we live. That they're connected there. And that actually gives a testimony, a witness to the world when they see the church actually living out what they believe that is more powerful than you possibly could imagine. The uh, author and, and uh, pastor, Kevin DeYoung, says, when the message of the gospel comes unglued from godliness, faith shatters. This idea that when we start proclaiming the gospel, that we're saved through Jesus Christ, but we also, we kind of diminish or downplay that now that results in a transformed, changed life, what is faith then? It's an empty head knowledge of what Christ has done and not how we're supposed to follow him with all of who we are. Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor in the 1800s, says, when the church descends to the world's level, her power is gone. And when people look upon the church and they're living just like the world as if they don't know who God is, why would people go to them to know who God is? Their power is gone. And so this is a, a plea. This is a command that our faith in our and how we live are united and connected in real and tangible ways. And it all rests on the great hope that we have. Because he says, you know, their knowledge of truth which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages 
begin. That this belief in this life all rests in this one true hope. That God is who he is, said he is, that he saves us and we will be forever with God. We have eternal life with God. That life is not just what we see here. Life is not just what's going on right now, what we see in front of us, but life actually exists for eternity. And life is bigger than we can see. And that we can have faith and can hope if we can lift our eyes past our present circumstances to see the one who stands beyond them, the one who stands at the foundations of the world and who stands at the, at the eternity's edge and see him and know him and see his love for us. And that is what our hope is. And that is where we rest in. And this God, as Bruce read from Numbers 23, he is a God who does not lie. He is a God who does not deceive his people. He is not a God who twists the truth, but rather he is a God who speaks and it happens, who promises and it is fulfilled. And so we trust and his word. And when he gives us a hope of what is going to happen, we trust in that. And this is what Paul has been preaching since the beginning. It's been manifested since the ages began. It's been the truth always. It hasn't changed. We can find it in the, in the earliest uh, verses of the Old Testament. We find it in the last verses of the New Testament. This is what we preach Christ. And this is what Paul's mission was. That he would go on. He was, he was uh, uh, called by God to preach this message. To proclaim this truth to all who would hear. And we are as well. We see this, and we see Paul mentioning this is his mission, that he rests in this hope. But I would pray that this would be our church's mission as well. And when we think about what, does, what do we want River Valley Community Church to be known for, don't we want it to be known for preaching the gospel, spreading the name of Jesus Christ? Don't we want it to be known for lifting people up in knowledge of who God is as well as living in accord with that, God, that knowledge? Don't we want it to be known for a place where people can come and know who Christ is and be changed as a result? Don't we want this to be our mission that we don't just stay here, but we expand out that these neighborhoods cannot stop hearing about Jesus because we're here preaching who Jesus is that people who we know in our work and our neighbors cannot stop hearing about who Jesus is because we share who Jesus is, not in a rude way or not in a in-your-face way, but just by who we are, we seek opportunities to spread the name and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shouldn't that be our mission? It's not just Paul who is called to this. It's all believers. We're called to this mission to look to Christ for our hope, to have that hope that changes us. And because we're changed, we now reach out and see our life not as our own own anymore, but rather as God's. We see our life mission not as our own thing we want to do anymore, but as we're sent by God to spread the fame of who Jesus Christ is. That is my hope for this church. That's my hope for each and every one of us. It's my hope for myself. And I know how often I fail and I, and I, and I, I don't live up to that standard, but yet that is what we're called to do and the grace of Jesus Christ works in us and moves us so we're able to do that bit by bit as we seek him in our lives. Because a solid faith leads to a solid living where we become gods in all that we do. So what should we do with this passage as we look to this, this intro of this letter to, the, to Titus? We look to Christ as Paul looked to Christ. 
We look to Christ first and foremost for hope. That our hope comes not from how well we can do this. Our hope come not, comes not how well we can be like Paul. Our hope does not come how well we can be like Titus or anything like that. Our hope comes from God, our Savior. That we look to Him and nowhere else. That we trust in Him nowhere else. And if you know Jesus Christ, then that's who you should look to. If you know Jesus Christ, then you look to him as your Savior. If you don't, I would urge you to pick up your Bible and read and see who he is and turn to him and, re- and respond to him calling you to be his, to respond to him on who he is. And if you need help with that, if you need someone to help walk you through about what that means, ask anyone who's been on stage, ask someone you know to be an elder or someone who greeted you as you walk in the store, but you look to Christ and see who he is and find that true hope, a hope that transcends all under other understanding, a hope that gives new definition to your life, that we look to Christ first and foremost for hope. And we also look to Christ for truth, a truth that fundamentally redefines how we see ourselves, a truth that fundamentally redefines how we see the world, but a truth that actually changes us where we can actually see that we're made for something bigger than just us. That we're made to make him known wherever we are. That we're sent out by him. And we look to Christ not just for hope or truth, but for life. The life we're given is his to give to us. He's given it to us to live for him. That we truly can move in ways in which we honor him in all that we do. We seek to honor him. So we look to Christ for hope, for truth, and for life because we know that solid faith leads to solid living. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word that we can read it, that we can see the truth of who you are, that we can respond to how you have saved us through through Jesus Christ, the sending of your Son, that we can know that through your word, that we can trust it because of who you are, that we can respond with all of who we are, that we can truly see ourselves as servants, as sent ones, as your people, as your kids in the faith. Lord, I just pray that we can be encouraged by this book of Titus, that we can be encouraged to be your people in all that we do. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.